gentrification, that's colonial virus. Uhuru, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. On December 2nd, six Pinellas County Sheriff's deputies fired over 50 bullets into a car and hit 20-year-old Dominique Harris 38 times, killing him. This police killing of another black man took place in a parking lot of a neighborhood store in South St. Petersburg in front of dozens of witnesses. It was filmed and went viral on social media. No, that's my brother, man. That's my brother. Oh yeah, he dead. Ain't no answer to bust about that. Man, they done put about a hundred. They done put about a hundred shots. What they say? Bro, they done put about a hundred shots. What they say? Bro, they came out of nowhere. He was part right there. He wants to follow his ass, brother. They let cars up, boy. They let cars up, boy. Oh, he dead, bro. I'm watching them break the man wonder. Yeah. So they broke his wonder. They broke his wonder, they shot it. They broke that man wonder. He did, bro. I heard the shot from on the next street over there. They shot that man about 15 times. Yeah, he did. His brother. The dude who they shot, that's his brother. Get back. Get back. Crime scene team coming through here. Get out of the area. Go. Go. And they just killed that man. And brought the whole police force out here, man. On today's show, we'll talk with St. Petersburg residents in Tomwe, Bekitita, and Akile Anai. Akile Anai is editor of the Burning Spear newspaper a monthly Black-powered journal in continuous publication since the height of the Black Revolution of the 60s. Three years ago, at age 21, and again in 2019, she ran for St. Petersburg City Council, the first candidate of any election internationally to run on the platforms of reparation. Akile was featured in Ebony Magazine and led a campaign for justice for three drowned Black girls that were murdered by the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department. In Tomway Bekisita, was born and raised in St. Petersburg. He's the owner of Freedom Cuts, an African internationalist barbershop in the heart of the Black working-class community of St. Pete. Akile, 
Thank you for coming on the People's War Radio Show today. On December 2nd, the St. Petersburg police shot 50 rounds into a car killing 20-year-old Dominique Harris. Where were you when you heard about it? And what was the general atmosphere in South St. Petersburg after the shooting? Uhuru, yes. Thank you, Matsumela and Mwambi. I was actually heading back to the Uhuru house, which is where the shooting took place across the street at this corner store. I was on my way back to the Uhuru house preparing for a meeting when my father and comrade and tomboy called me to let me know that someone had been, that the police had just murdered someone across the street from uh, the Uhuru house. So I um, headed back towards this way. And by the time I had gotten here, it was probably about 30 minutes or so since the shooting had happened. The police had, you know, every street, like main street blocked off. It was very difficult to even get to the Uru house. And people were outside. It was at first, I think, a moment of like shock. And there was some grief. I saw African women crying in the streets. And then generally, African people were, you know, saying it's it's going to be 96 all over again and, and, you know, cussing out the pigs and things like that. So that was the general sentiment that was being expressed by the time I had gotten to the Uhuru house. Ntambwe, thanks for coming on the show. The reports say that there were five undercover police officers and one uniformed officer that shot him 50 times in broad daylight in a crowded grocery store parking lot. Can you tell us about the neighborhood and the relationship between the police and the community in South St. Pete? And I know you work in a barbershop and as Akile was saying, you were the one who notified her. So can you just kind of tell us about, you know, about how you found out? Uhuru, comrades, Masumila and Mwambi, I appreciate you. Um, I want to express my profound appreciation for being able to be on the show. When I had heard about it, it was a phone call received uh, by one of, one of the other barbers in the barbershop and, you know, informed everybody that of what was happening uh, uh, at that moment, um, or what was happening, what had ha- just happened. Uh, and there was a brother that came into the shop with his, uh, with his two sons, and he said he, he witnessed it. He witnessed it. The entire thing. He wouldn't give me his name, but I gave him my business card and uh, told him to get in contact with me. He stated that uh, he was on Tyron Lewis Ave, formerly uh, 18th Avenue South, uh, right in that that passes uh, right in front of the store. He said that there was a black truck that almost hit him. You know, zoomed past him and hit like hit the the car that um that the brother was in like head on, and then another uh, police vehicle pinned aside. And uh, he said when and they jumped out and they started shooting at the vehicle. So um, which would contradict a lot of reports that uh, that uh, were made by media and um, uh, Sheriff Bob Gutierrez, you know. Uh, but the community itself has is, is one that has always been under um, police terror and occupation. Just a block away from that, two days after actually Director Akile was born. October 24th, I think um, that was when um, Tyron Lewis was murdered, uh, gunned down by um, Officer James Knight and uh, Sandra Minor. And the city um, went, in, uh, went up and up where Africans rose up and fought the police back. And uh, uh, it was an incredible uh, 
effort of resistance by the community. In this situation, the police were, they, they were, it was, they, they responded in such a manner uh, where it's like they had locked the, the, <laughs> that part of the city down. It's like almost immediately. One of my clients is married to a, a police, um, well, she's not necessarily, but she works for the police department. And he was telling me, just was it Saturday, he was telling me that um, he called, you know, he called his wife after hearing about it. Well, he actually witnessed police just going crazy uh, in the community. And he called his wife and she said, well, they're responding to, I forgot the code, which which would mean something about what all all hands on deck, basically. The code that was sent out to the officers. So everybody had to, all the officers had to be there. Yeah, but that that was the, you know, the setting. Director Akile, the local newspapers and television stations came out with various stories about this murder. Can you tell us what they were saying about the incident? Yeah, and I, I want to point out, too, just the, the current, you know, rise in political consciousness among the African working class. Because most often, you know, we're used to just taking whatever it is that the police and the media say at face value and say, okay, that's the story. That's what happened. And, you know, we are able to piece together or not able to piece together really the details of that evening from the media and from the police that nothing really added up about what they were saying about the story. And it was really interesting because being on the ground there and seeing them literally try to cover up a murder scene. The only people that were allowed, you know, up to the store where it had happened, they let the police in, they let media in, and they were, you could literally, like, the only thing you could summarize from that is that, you know, they were collaborating to try to get their stories together, but they weren't really successful because the stories weren't adding up. In fact, the first story that would even come out about the murder was that no no murder had taken place at all. The first thing they started to report on was the fact that some police officers got hit and, you know, they were taken to the hospital and they were keeping people updated with the status of these police off of this police officer that had gotten hit. And, you know, we suspect they were hit in crossfire. I'm not crossfire, but from their um, from their own buddies, you know, surrounding a car and shooting into it as many times as they did. So that was the only thing they reported on. And for, for a while, they hadn't even said anybody had died. And then um, when the reports came out that somebody had died, they wouldn't say that was they, they wouldn't say it was an African. They wouldn't say it was an African that was murdered. And then, of course, when they, uh, you know, finally did reveal this information, they uh, had to have this brother's rap sheet out, um, you know, talking about some alleged warrant out for, you know, all these like different things that they used to justify the vicious murders of African people. And they, um, you know, they had reports that he was at one point was he managed to get out of the car. And um, but I think their final reports said that he was in the car when he was shot and killed and that he had attempted to raise a gun at, um, you know, the officers and tried to fire back. And that's what they're saying prompted the shooting, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and, you know, in the event that this African did manage to get an you know, um, get a gun and, and shoot back, it was definitely in a manner of self-defense, being surrounded by as many police as he was with guns drawn on him and they're already shooting you know, it um, it would have it would have made absolute sense for somebody to defend themselves in that situation. But 
those are just the things that the, the media has said to, again, justify the what they did, what took place that day. So Thanks for that, Director Keeley, because I know that Burning Spear Media immediately spread the word of the murder throughout the African nation. Can you tell us the difference from the Black community outlets, such as Black Power 96.3 and the Burning Spear newspaper versus this colonial media coverage of the incident? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the major difference is that um, the Burning Spear newspaper and Black Power 96.3 FM represent institutions of dual and contending power. And it's the African working class's ability to define our own narrative and to, you know, to tell the story and to tell the truth. And whereas the colonial media, the bourgeois media, their responsibility is to uphold you know, the colonial narrative, the colonial lie that the police are um, using to justify this murder of Dominique, the media has to come in and reinforce that justification. And so that's the major difference is that our institutions don't go to reinforce uh, colonialism. They go to reinforce the anti-colonial struggle and the actual reality of colonialism imposed on African people. And um, as you stated, the Burning Spear, you know, took action and, you know, immediately blasted this video that was shot um, by somebody in that corner store where, you know, you could hear the cries of uh, Dominique's, you know, brother um, who, you know, identified himself as a brother to Dominique. And you could hear him, you know, crying in the background. And we took that footage. We downloaded it immediately because Facebook has a way of, you know, making sure that this type of information gets blocked or censored. We downloaded that. We sent it out immediately because we knew that the colonial lies were about to be spun. And then we um, held a press conference on behalf of the African People's Socialist Party at the site of the murder two days following to state the reality of what happened, which is the reality of colonialism. So you know, that's the major difference. And we, these institutions have a responsibility uh, to, to do this because, you know, again, if, if we don't, the only information, the only news source that we have out there is that of the colonial bourgeois media. And we know, again, that their job is to reinforce the colonial lie. So you are listening to the People's War Radio Show. Produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Akile Anayi and Ntambwe Becky Zipa. Uhuru Ntambwe, you were born and raised in St. Petersburg, am I correct? That's correct. In your lifetime, how have things changed for the African community in South St. Pete? In my lifetime, I've um, just ex- experienced um, the same things, basically. The, I mean, I, I, well, even even in my my younger years, there were more uh, African businesses, grocery stores, corner stores, cleaners, things like that that started phasing out. Um, this process of gentrification really started a long time ago. Um, even when they run um, run the interstate two, uh, 275 through the heart of of um, St. Petersburg, and which cut off it was like um, it was like it cut off the circulation from the businesses that we frequented in our own communities because it ran right through the heart of the community. And before, just before I, I, I was a teen is when they uh, erected the, um, the, destroyed the, um, the gas plant district. It was like the last 
standing African community with businesses and, and, and whatnot that was still only controlled by Africans. When, once they leveled that and erected the Tropicana Dome, you saw this is when you start seeing an emergence of um, downtown area starting really to populate and start really to, to, to flourish for the white community. Whereas the, the African community got more police then you know it became a it became a, a serious attack on our community in that regards. But growing up in St. Peter, that it has changed a lot, and like right now, it's uh it is truly vicious, and um the the process of gentrification has erupted in such a way as I mean violently, you know, truly violently. Uh, um the the first form of, of of that gentrification is the police, you know, and how they how they are utilizing our communities. Uhuru, director Akile. In 2019, you ran a highly popularized candidacy for city council under the model Make the South Side Black Again. Can you tell us what that was about? Absolutely. Um, Make the South Side Black Again was, you know, obviously this very bold slogan. And it was a slogan that represented anti-gentrification and basically the you know, the fight to keep the Black community in St. Petersburg, because as Ntambwe was mentioning, this whole process of gentrification is extremely vicious. And as I'm sure, as in, as he's mentioned, so much has changed in his lifetime. As a lifelong resident myself, um, so much has changed in mine. And they are, you know, rapidly moving to remove African people out of this community because they have plans to develop. I mean, they're already you know, those plans that they've made, they're already um, acting on them. We're being surrounded by luxury apartments and condominiums and more and more we're getting priced out. And with this whole question of police containment, you know, no uh, economy whatsoever, no economic life whatsoever um, for African people in in this city. Uh, so Make the South Side Black Again was a part of an anti-gentrification campaign that we led that um, not only called for an anti-gentrification, but demanded reparations to the African community for the historic and present day crimes committed against Black people in St. Pete by this government, um, among other things uh, that we, you know, we called for. But it was about, it was a campaign fighting for political and economic power in the hands of the African community and make the South Side Black again. That slogan just made it, you know, unambiguous. <laughs> it's just, this is what it is. This is what we're fighting for. So that was that, that campaign that we, yeah, that we ran last year, 2019. Uhuru, yeah, I definitely agree that the campaign is bold. Now, you mentioned uh, police containment when you're uh, just talking. You're saying how the campaign was an anti-gentrification campaign, which, you know, gentrification is forcing a Black working class families out of St. Pete. So can you talk about that relationship between gentrification and the policies of the heavy-handed police occupation of the community? I mean, the police are serving as, you know, the, the military occupying force that will, you know, carry out the will of the government. And if the will of the government is to get African people out of this city, then the police are going to be used to reinforce that. And they're the part of the state apparatus that, you know, uses violence and coercion to, to make that happen. And um, that's exactly what it is that they're doing. And because they're, I mean, they're not going to get African people out of the city without a fight. And so they, um, this government has to have its, um, its military in the form of the police, in the form of the sheriff's department, 
to to facilitate the process of getting us out of here. And, you know, whether that um, happened uh, where African people are forced out by being priced out of our homes or we literally are, are leaving in body bags, that is, you know, what the police are are going to be doing. And the process of gentrification is so intense. I mean, because it affects all these things. So when you have a situation where African people are first uh, cornered into this one area in the city, and then you strip African people of any ability to exercise any political power first, and any ability to feed, clothes, and house themselves by robbing them of their economy, then the only situation that can emerge from that is, uh, you know, the situation of uh, violence, you know, horrible violence and humiliation imposed on a people. And, um, you know, through, so through that, and, and, you know, that this, these are the things that they use, they, you know, crime rates and drugs and all this kind of stuff that they use as, uh, you know, means of justification of coming into our community. But these are all things that are being set up by the government itself to, uh, again, facilitate the process of removing us from this community. I mean, if we can't pay, you know, the, the, um, the rents on these, uh, these uh, apartments that are increasing every single day as a result of the development of these, you know, luxury apartments and beach homes and things like that, if we can't uh, respond to the different uh, code enforce and think code enforcements that um, the city imposes, all of these things that they have to be able to have the state there, the police, to be able to back up the, you know, those kinds of policies and things like that to, again, just make the process so that we are removed out of this community one way or the other. So the more we disappear, the, uh, the more the police are going to be here to just make sure that it's, you know, that that process is final. Um, the more white people move into our community where they have to be now protected from African people, uh, because these the, the the white gentrifiers have the stolen resources, are here buying up our homes, and they may live right next to an African working class family with absolutely nothing who's being threatened on their way out. The police have to be there to protect the white gentrifiers who are being who are pushing themselves into our communities. So um, you know the this police presence is only going to intensify with uh, this process of gentrification, but it's an absolutely needed tool, this, um, this, uh, this violent entity to be, you know, wreaking havoc in our communities to make sure that, you know, we, I mean, what, what happened to Dominique was a state, it was a, it was this thing that happened in broad daylight to make an example out of African people to say, this is what will happen to you, you know? Um, so in that, in that situation, I mean, that was a message to all, the whole African community that we, we're not supposed to be here. We're not going to be here for much longer. The murder of Dominique Harris is not an isolated incident. The violence and murder of Africans in St. Pete has been in the news at least as early as the 1914 lynching of John Evans, continuing to the 2015 drowning of three black girls, Lania Miller, age 15, Dominique Battle, age 16, and Ashanti Butler, age 15 by Pinellas County deputies. The murder of Dominique Harris represents a long struggle against colonial violence of African people in St. Petersburg and throughout the Tampa Bay area. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, it's not an isolated incident. And, you know, we, I mean, we see this, it's an ongoing base. I mean, we mentioned earlier Tyron Lewis and how this murder happened just a block away uh, from 
the murder of an 18-year-old African um, in 1996, that this is a part of a process of colonialism. This is colonialism that we're experiencing. And Africans will continue to die at the hands of the police, as well as the other instruments of this, you know, vicious social system. You know, uh, as long as African people are dominated by this, by the system of colonialism, then, um, you know, this is going to continue to happen to us. And, you know, the the city of St. Petersburg, Florida, um, the government who tries to, you know, paint this city as progressive and inclusive and has just overcome so many of its, um, you know, horrible, tragic crimes um, that it's committed against African people. I mean, and when we look at just the the history and the foundations of this city, we, I mean, and you compare even the case of John Evans in 1914, where this African man um, was strung from a light pole in um, and and clung to the light pole for dear life to be able to prevent strangulation. And um, in order to make sure that he, I mean, his death was um, certain, you know, you had this white woman take out her gun, fire the first shot, and that um, you know, gave way uh, just minutes later for white women, men, and children to start firing their weapons at this body, um, this African body, you know, hanging from this light pole. And then you have a situation in 2020 where in broad daylight, in front of everyone, in front of the entire African community, with no regard to who is around, who who is being affected by this, and no regard for that African life at all, and it's not supposed to have regard for that life. And we don't even act like it's supposed to or, you know, try to appeal to it in any way, shape or form. And then you have this police, this police force that dumps, you know, 50 bullets into that car and 38 of them that hit um, this brother uh, that ultimately ended up uh, killing him. And so, um, you know, this is this is the history of St. Pete, sunny St. Pete. That's its history. And, um, you know, like you mentioned in uh, 2016, where the murders of three teenage African girls with the sheriff's department, look, you could hear them saying, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're good as dead. You know, they're gone. They heard them screaming and then uh, would, and would say they're, you know, they're good as dead. I mean, this is, that's the context to which the murder of Dominique Harris happened. So when we, when we look at that and we're able to sum that up, you know, that this isn't just something that happened against Dominique Harris. This isn't a case of just a couple of bad cops who who did a bad job. This is a system. This is a system of violence and it is historic and it, it is in place today to make and to, to do all the things that I just mentioned earlier um, in regards to, you know, this process of gentrification and to keep Africans under colonial domination. So, um, you know, this is this is, yeah, I mean, this is a part of its history. And uh, Dominique Harris was a part of the history of colonial violence um, that's imposed on our people. Thank you for raising the connections between gentrification and the colonial violence that African people still endure. It is often said that lynchings happen because of accusations of sexual assault. However, Ida B. Wells in the Red Record over 100 years ago discovered that was not true. Ida B. Wells noted that the cause for lynchings were economic conflicts between African workers and the white ruling class. It was political and economic at its base and not mere extrajudicial punishment of Africans that had done wrong. In the Evans case, Evans was accused of killing a white real estate developer. 
It seems no coincidence that white real estate development, gentrification, or as we like to call it, urban removal, is still the cause of Africans being murdered by colonial violence in St. Pete. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Akile Anai and Ntambwe Bekisita. Ntambwe, as you raised earlier, in 1996, the St. Petersburg police shot and killed an unarmed African man, 18-year-old Tyron Lewis, in a traffic stop. Beginning with hand-to-hand resistance from the Africans who witnessed that murder, a full-scale rebellion erupted that include burning down cop cars, police stations, media trucks, and parasitic merchants. You were a young man during the 1996 murder of Tyron Lewis. Can you tell us more about that time? Yeah, that time, um, just going back, it just took me back how energetic it was and um, the, the, just the people in, uh, in, uh, the, the people in the community, Africans in the community, um, had a, a clear understanding, you know, well, I would say, of what was happening at that moment, you know, and how to respond. It was necessary to respond in this fashion um, to to uh, uh, to resist, to take on the um, you know this occupying uh, force. And when they did, it was it, for, for me being young and being out there, involved with whatever protests, whatever struggles I could be in, uh, um, being a part of being a part of uh, uh, NPDM at the time. Man, it was like I said, it was electrifying. Uh, whoo. <laughs> But I just just being able to see it, um, see the strength in our in the people when we and, and it's it's like Chairman O'Malley Ishitella has always said, circumstances will move the people, you know, in certain certain ways and, and under those circumstances the people understood to rise up and rising up and I say in those times it was I mean they they had to they had to back up they had to get back they had to redo that thing because Africans in that in our community we weren't going for it we were not going for it um, and it, it it was just like I said it was it was it was energetic and even um, having some discussions with Africans uh, who were out in the streets they were saying this is the first time in my life I ever felt free you know <laughs> and that was um yeah that was something that was something was a revelation. <laughs> I want to share a clip from Chairman O'Malley Eshetela's keynote presentation to the December 1996 convention of what was then called the National People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. It's international now. But this is Chairman O'Malley speaking in Chicago, Illinois, about what happened in the Battle of St. Pete. They murdered Teron Lewis. It was supposed to be just another day in Africa. That's what it was supposed to be. The state's response to the murder and to the immediate resistance that emerged was typical. The response of the state to the murder of Teron Lewis was never to reprimand the police. There was no intent ever to say the police might have done something wrong. Uh, or to say uh, that there are any kind of underlying social contradictions which may have also contributed to the rebellion that occurred on October 24th. The response of the state, of the government, with the help of the ruling class media, 
was first to slander Teron Lewis, because you know he did have a criminal record. And he was speeding. And there was some crack we found in the car after he was killed. So that was the first thing they did. Secondly, the response was to isolate and criminalize the Uhuru movement for inciting the rebellion. Never, never, never did they intend to say, well, maybe the police acted improperly. Maybe there are some kind of underlying social contradictions here responsible for the rebellion. Their response was to slander that brother, to isolate and criminalize our movement, and then to indict us to send us to prison. That was their response immediately. But you need to know that the resistance was not typical. What happened in St. Petersburg was incredible for its advanced character. The advanced character of the resistance in St. Petersburg was striking. People all around the country, even people, even through the bourgeois media, were able to see the advanced character of the struggle that happened in St. Petersburg, Florida. And it was advanced because even though there were waves of people uh, in the streets, the thing that was so striking about St. Petersburg wasn't just burning and looting, so to speak, but there were what they like to refer to in this country when they're murdering people in Iraq and other places uh, is there were surgical strikes that uh, saw uh, police precincts, uh, two police precincts in the African community destroyed. That's so, that so, uh, police car overturned, burned on the spot. So media vehicles burned uh, uh, on the spot. So blood-sucking, filthy, parasitic merchants, many of them been in the community for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Only role they play in the community is come there to pick up money. And as soon as they get it, they stay there long enough to exhaust the supply of money for the day, then they take the money and leave and come back the next day to get the money. And while people may have thought the masses were sleeping and didn't understand the role of these forces, they did clearly understand their role. And they went to burn to the ground. The historic struggle between the African community of South St. Pete and white colonial power has been termed the Battle of St. Pete. In my research, I state that urban rebellions do not always begin with politics, but they often end with them. The Battle of St. Pete stands out because it's one struggle that in fact began with politics, African internationalism. In the Battle of St. Pete, the African community defended the Uhuru movement, and the Uhuru movement gave leadership to the struggle, which resulted in a political victory for the African community. Let's go back to Chairman O'Malley's presentation to the Uhuru movement in Chicago in December 1996, where he tells the story of what happened on November 13, 1996, when the grand jury delivered its decision to not charge the police for the murder of Tyron Lewis and 300 armed military forces attacked the Uhuru House Black Community Organizing Center. The police used 27 members of a special weapons police organization called a Green Team to arrest, pull over, 
right at our headquarters, a member of the Uhuru movement, they said because he had an expired license plate. You know, you usually get a ticket for that, right? They used 27 members of a special weapons organization, seven carloads, seven carloads, pull him over because of an expired license plate. I, I'm, I'm walking up at the time this is going on. They got the brother in the back seat of a car, handcuffed, searching his car, and what have you. And when I walked up, the brother who was with me, they said, we want to put you in jail too. We got a warrant for your arrest. And by now, hundreds of African people are out on the streets because of the police activity. And November 13 was really important because that was the day that the grand jury that was supposedly investigating the shooting of Teron Lewis and whether the police had committed any crime when they did that came back, as everybody expected, and exonerated the police. Said police didn't do nothing wrong in killing this brother on that day. So people were already upset about that. So now the police move on our building. Hundreds of people are now out on the streets watching this affair. This is when they, when they rushed to get the brother, to arrest him, they pushed us back against the wall. Pepper sprayed me in the face. Pepper sprayed Sister Kinara Zima in the face and arrested the brother. Hundreds of Africans died out on the streets, standing in front of the Uhura house on both sides of the streets, just watching. The police carrying on, riding up and down in front of the Uhura house, five in a car, guns sticking out of the doors, which are partially open and what have you, and the people just standing there watching them, right up and down, up and down. In the meantime, we had already been putting out leaflets announcing that regular, at our regular 6.30 meeting, we were going to be talking about the verdict that came from the grand jury. At 6 o'clock, the police put up barricades on the streets on both sides of the Uhura house, turned people around, told them they couldn't come to the meeting. Said, you come to the meeting, we're going to put you in jail or do something worse to you. That was at 6 o'clock. Hundreds of people out on the streets. The police now have begun using pepper spray to try to make people leave the area. Some of the people are running into the auditorium, getting away from the police using pepper spray. spray. About 100 or so people were in the auditorium. Then I'm trying to calm the people down on the inside because of the police antics going on where hundreds of people are still outside. And the police, and the brother comes up to me and says, uh, the police have said that over the bullhorn that this is an unlawful assembly and that we've got five minutes to get out of the building or they're going to shoot tear gas into the auditorium. They began spraying people at the door of the auditorium with pepper gas, pepper spray, so that they couldn't close the doors. 30 seconds later, after the announcement, they started shooting tear gas into the auditorium. What you got to understand is there were something like 300 policemen outside the building. They didn't just have the St. Petersburg Police Department, they had the Florida Highway Patrol, the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department, and police from neighboring cities. 300 or more cops were outside our building. They used all the tear gas that they had in the city of St. Petersburg. They didn't have no more tear gas when they finished shooting tear gas on our building. They used helicopters, 
And they had a small plane, at least one small plane, that they used against us. Tear gas coming into the building. There were babies in that building. There were children and women and men in the building. And people are screaming, the women trying to get to their children and take care of them and trying to get out of the rear of the building. And when they would open the door to the rear, they run into a wall of tear gas because the cops have shot tear gas, not only in the auditorium, but everywhere around the building. The people, they, they were shooting tear gas into a, a tree behind our building. And it set in a fire, the canister set in a fire and threatened the vehicle, a van behind, behind the building and through that threatened the building itself. And the people in the community would run out and put the fire out and the police would start the fire again. Three times that happened. And the police, the people would try to put the fire out. They actually tore a huge branch out of the tree and were dragging it across the street. And the police would shoot tear gas at them to chase them away so that our building, our vehicles and our building could burn down. They were bad that night. 300 of them out there. And then the people rose up and met them with a fierce armed resistance. You understand? You know what I'm saying? Met them with a fierce armed resistance. It was a serious resistance, you understand? Because they intended, first, they failed in their attempt to isolate us politically, criminalize us, and shoot us off the prison. They failed. Then they tried to create a situation where they could provoke something that would allow them to attack us militarily. They were going to win it, get rid of us by a military attack. And when they attacked us militarily, they got their asses kicked by the people right there in the streets. I mean this. I mean this. You, you have to understand what happened. It was serious. The, the people brought down a police helicopter with gunshot, gunshot, gunfire, brought it down forced it down with gunshot. They wounded one cop, shot one cop. And the transcript of a police communication over the radio that appeared in the paper the next day had the commander screaming over the radio, pull the troops back. We're under heavy fire. You understand? We're under heavy fire. Under heavy fire. against us that they had in the city. Pull the troops back, we're under heavy fire. And we're talking about the youngsters, they, they, they were called the ghost faces. Ghost faces. Because they tied their shirts around their faces and bandanas around their faces and jumped dead in their chest. So, the police never even were able to enter the building. If the crime was being committed, the building wasn't in it. Nobody in the building was arrested. It wasn't about arresting anybody. It was about destruction. They meant to kill Maine on that day. They wanted a military victory, and they got their asses kicked. Serious guerrilla warfare. So in Tamwe or Aquile, what difference does organization and political strategy make in waging successful protests versus spontaneous or leaderless actions? Well, yeah, um, 
the Battle of St. Pete was uh, really unique in that in that regard. The Uhuru Movement is an organization that was founded by Chairman Molly Chichella in 1972. And um, before that, and, and just to say, chair, the birthplace of the chairman is in St. Petersburg, Florida. And prior to the founding of the African People's Socialist Party, there you know, was the organization, the work happening with the Hunt of Militant Organizations, JOMO, and um, even the work that the chairman was doing uh, part of the, as um, a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And before its founding, the chairman was a part of the Black liberation struggle and that was happening here in this country that was defeated uh, by U.S. counterinsurgency. And um, But I, I say all of that to, to basically explain the um, political situation in St. Petersburg, that it was not void of any political leadership, that uh, based on that history and the chairman's existence and the leadership that he's been providing over you know, um, over 50 years now, particularly in the city of St. Pete, that the struggle had a very um, mature ideological character in 96. We were in the community, you know, handing out leaflets and flyers and selling the spear and, you know, having community meetings and we engaged in political education. And, and then we had this history already there of the Uhuru movement organizing in the city of St. Pete. So there, there was, you know, African internationalism on the ground um, and in the minds of the African working class community in the city. And so with the murder of Tyron Lewis in 96, I mean, there was an understanding that this is an attack on the African community. And I mean, it just had, like I said, that advanced ideological character to it where we could sum up what had just happened and, you know, the the necessary means to which, um, you know, we have to solve this problem. Um, and, you know, so there, so there was that. And then there was the, you know, when we answer this question of, you know, having, um, you know, this, this clarity leadership provided, um, you know, going into it, this political strategy and organization going into it versus spontaneous and leaderless is the question of to what end? I mean, we go out and we protest and we engage in this even arm to you know arm to arm uh you know struggle. But what does it result in? And the the fact of the matter is, we as African people have to our responsibility has to be to end colonialism. And if there if the if if our demonstration or protest or whatever we're doing at that point is not a part of a strategy or doesn't represent Africans fighting to end colonialism, then, you know, really it's fruitless at the end of the day. I mean, we, cause we're going to have to continue to do that kind of thing because Africans are going to continue to die at the hands of colonialism. So is it every time an African gets killed, we're going to be out protesting and that's it. Then we go home and, and wait for the next murder or, you know, with organization and political leadership, are we actively engaged in the process of ending colonialism, waging an anti-colonial struggle? And that's what the benefit of, you know, having this leadership gave us in 96. Um, because with, uh, we were organizing around it. We were organizing, we were having community meetings about the verdict of, uh, of you know, um, the, the jury that did not indict uh, James Knight and Sandra Minor, the um, the police that killed Tyron Lewis. We were ha we were going to be having a meeting about that to determine what our strategy was, and it was the police 
that prevented that meeting from happening, that attacked, you know, the Uhuru movement, tried to kill the leaders in 96 and blocked African people from being able to get to their meeting, their organizing location so that we could determine a way forward. The, you know, the police, you know, initiated that attack against our community from the moment they murdered Tyron Lewis. And, um, you know, and, and gave African people no no choice, you know, but to, to have to fight back, engage and engage in this kind of guerrilla warfare that we saw in 96. So, you know, but that that happens as a result of political leadership. You know, otherwise the police would have been able to come in and destroy the Uhuru movement and kill off our leaders if our community had not already received this leadership from the African People's Socialist Party and African internationalism in the first place. Thanks for that. What about you, Ntambwe? I unite with everything, everything that Director Akile um, just laid out. And it's, it, it's kind of crazy because it seemed like she was there. <laughs> but she was, um, wasn't she? But yeah. Um, Theoretically. It, 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 <laughs> she was. <laughs> Theoretically, she was. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, the, the, you know, um, the, uh, the uh, MPDM was there. MPDM was on the ground uh, organizing the people, and it did not go without um, any uh, political um, ideology. Uh, um, I mean, you know, the people were informed. We were organizing. And she mentioned um, the, the the meeting that was uh, uh, to be held. It had over 100 uh, people in, inside of the Uhura house that day. And because um, I, I was getting to the, the meeting late because I was at work. Um, and I actually took the, the work van to the Uhuru house to have this meeting. And when I, I had to, they had the roads blocked off and I had to finagle through alleys, alleyways and backyards <laughs> trying to get to the Uhuru house. When, as I pulled up, they were shooting, they was unloading tear gas. I mean, they, cause it was stated that they emptied out all the tear gas canisters in, um, in the city of St. Pete on the Uhuru house. And, um, uh, and when those tear gas canisters come out, they come out on fire, you know. So they were shooting them at trees, at the at the at the, at the couple entrances that people were trying to get out of, and it was just they they were intending to kill people, intending to kill people. But what, based on uh, the community having this political uh, uh, ideology coming from this organization, coming from the coming from NPDM, from the African People's Soldiers Party. Is what uh, we we deemed them later as the ghost face. They had those T-shirts wrapped around their face, and they came out guns blazing, pushing the police back, which saved lives, which saved lives, saved lives on, on that evening. Yeah. <laughs> you are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WPPU Black Power ninety six point three FM in Saint Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Akile Anai. And in time, where Bikisita. Director Akile, what is the Uhuru movement doing about the police murder of Dominic Harris today in St. Pete? Some of the first things we ended up doing um, is being able to control the narrative around this situation and be able to put out, you know, what happened on our account. Um, and I'm talking about specifically the African working class through the Burning Spear newspaper, um, through the pre- this press conference that we had um, last Friday that raises up the demand for Black community control of the police. And, you know, and, and what, however, you know, we push that campaign forward, but that's currently the, the demand that, you know, we're making right now, um, you know, because there will be, you know, people on the ground uh, calling for police accountability and body and body cameras on the 
police and all these kinds of things. But we're pushing this demand for black community control of the police, uh, for the ability of the African community to hire, fire, train and discipline the security forces that would function in our community. Um, that we have the ability to investigate, um, you know, the different crimes that are committed against our people, including this. Uh, we want to be able to investigate the crime that happened um, with the murder of Dominique Harris, because the police have, um, you know, tried to assure the public that the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department's uh, special investigations task force is going to be investigating this crime. And they're all, they're all a part of the same team. So, you know, we want to have the power to be able to investigate this uh, ourselves and to indict the officers involved in the murder of Dominique Harris, um, indict them and, um, you know, send them straight uh, to where they belong. And, uh, of course, you know, raise up the demand for reparations to the family of Dominique Harris um, and, you know, this uh, and, and to challenge the, the St. Pete City government and particularly this mayor, Rick Kreisman. Um, you know, who who has not come out and condemned the police for what it is that they've done to Dominique Harris and, um, you know, have have even gone to reinforce the again, the colonial lies about this case. So, you know, those are those are our demands. That's what we're you know really pushing forward. And, um, it, you know, throughout the various campaigns that we're involved in um, and, um, you know, again, uh, also trying to define this whole story for um, our community through the institutions that belong to us, like the Burning Spur newspaper and Black Print 96. If our listeners want to learn more or get involved, how can they contact you? Well, they can go to APSPuru.org for more information regarding the party, how you can join and get in contact with us. I really want to, um, you know, push uh, to put out the African People's Socialist Party um, as, you know, the leading force around the question of, you know, anti-colonialism and making the struggle against colonialism. It's going to be the African People's Socialist Party. We have to go beyond being angry, beyond, um, you know, just having to constantly mourn the loss of Africans, you know, our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers. We have to go beyond that point and we got to go beyond protests and demonstrations. And, you know, we have to be involved in a process of ending the social system once and for all. So uh, the African People's Socialist Party is, you know, the vehicle um, that is positioned to take this question on. So APSPUhuru.org to get in contact with, with us. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Akile Anai and Ntambwe Becky Zipa. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit APEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on Black Power Talks Podcast on WUBP.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Unc, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, Akile Anai and Ntabwe Bekisitha, for joining us today. 
We would also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Colonial virus is why I can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Down with the colonial virus. 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 The colonial virus is why I'm poor. The colonial virus keeps me at war. The colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. So we say, down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus.